But 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, hear the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we became infants among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's an expression we sometimes use, and it goes like this. He's got some explaining to do. And we say that when there's some suspicious activity, it may be okay, it may not be okay, but it's really suspicious looking. Or we might say that to somebody else. You've got some explaining to do. You did something that's really questionable, and, and you really need to, to explain your, your actions. Well, there's no evidence that the Thessalonians were saying this to Paul and to his companions, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy. There's no evidence that they were criticizing Paul. But Paul and the other missionaries' behavior in Thessalonica, it looks like it was raising some suspicions, not so much among the believers, but among their fellow citizens. What had happened? Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy had come into town. Uh, they were bearing wounds from their, their beating in Philippi, and they preached the gospel there for at least three weeks, probably more than that. And then they disappeared overnight after they provoked a riot in the town. And so this riot broke out in the town, and it was uh, among Jews and also the Romans, and they were uh, in an uproar, and they went before the, the civil authorities, and then, boom, these missionaries that had come in and made such a ruckus, they were gone. They disappeared overnight. 
And so that just looks like it raised some suspicions among the people. Like, oh, some traveling charlatans, and they came in. You believers, you new believers in Jesus, they took advantage of you. And look, they just disappeared overnight. And so they were saying, your missionaries have some explaining to do. And Paul was aware of that. And that's why in writing this letter, there's a lot of self-defense in this letter. Not defending himself against the Thessalonian believers, but giving them an explanation so that they could then have an explanation for their countrymen. They could say, well, no, it's not like it looks. It's not like it looks. We're the ones who sent them out for their own protection. And so here Paul is defending himself, not against the believers, but against the unbelievers who were attacking. But this is very convenient for us, very instructive for us. Remember last week, we looked at the example of the Thessalonian believers and found out that they were a model church. Paul poured on the praise and the thanksgiving. And we realized they're a church that's worthy of our imitation. And so what we're seeing today is, where did they get that? And now we're seeing that where they got it was from the missionaries who brought the gospel to them. So last week we saw a model church, and now we're hearing the description of model missionaries. This is what ministers should look like. And this is very, very timely for us, because as a young church, we are getting ready to elect our ministers, our elders, and our deacons. And so we should know what these people should look like. What are the traits of a faithful minister, a faithful servant of the gospel? Well, we have them here, and we have, I think they're divided, yes, six of them. Six traits of faithful ministers. And I want you to see that all of these traits, or most of them anyway, are in this form. Not this, but that. Not this, but that. A faithful minister of the gospel doesn't look like this, but looks like that. And you will see that structure. For example, verse 2. Our coming was not in vain, but though, and then also in verse 3. Our appeal does not spring from error, but just as we have been approved by God, and so on. And then in verse 4. But we speak not to please men, but to please God. And it goes on like that. Not this, but that. Not this, but that. So we get both sides of the picture. We get what a minister of the gospel shouldn't look like, and we get the contrast, what a servant of God should look like. Also, the missionaries were able to appeal to what they knew. Throughout this, it says, as you know, the first verse, for you yourselves know. And then verse 2, as you know. And then down later, verse 5, as you know. And then in verse 9, for you remember. So they were appealing to what they already knew and saw firsthand in these missionaries when they were present in Thessalonica. So let's get into it. What are the traits of faithful ministers? First of all, faithful ministers preach the gospel despite hardship and opposition. Despite hardship and opposition. First two verses. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain or in vanity, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they had been beaten, they'd been put in stocks, they'd been put in prison in Philippi, and they left there, went to Thessalonica. Their wounds were still fresh from that beating that they had received, but even so, they didn't back down in Thessalonica. Rather, they had boldness once again to preach the gospel. Now, this trait contrasts with pastoral vanity, 
pastoral vanity. It says, our coming to you is not in vain. Now, that sounds like it's talking about that our coming to you wasn't without a good product. But that's not the idea here. The idea that our coming to you was not in our personal vanity. It wasn't about us and our personal pastoral vanity. It wasn't focused on us. But rather, even though we had suffered there and been shamefully treated, we had boldness to preach in the midst of Thessalonica, even though there was more conflict and more opposition there. Now, there's nothing like suffering to test the sincerity of our professed beliefs, is there? We may say, I believe this. But then when suffering comes, whether it's sickness or whether it's opposition, whether it's hardship or financial or whatever it might be, whatever kind of hardship, a loss, grief, whatever it might be, that really tests what we believe. And so here's the first evidence that these ministers were not preaching out of vanity. They were preaching out of sincerely held beliefs because they were willing to suffer for the message that they were preaching. Also, we have the key to that, by the way. We have the key to that trait and we have the key to all traits, all positive traits of servants of Christ. It says here in verse two, we had boldness in our God. So you see, we're talking about the traits of the ministers here, but we never should forget the source of those. Where did they get this boldness? This is not normal human boldness. You get beaten in one city, you go to another city, the people are against you there. What do you do? Well, you shut up. You don't say anything. That's the normal human cowardly way to do it. They had boldness that wasn't from them. They had boldness from God. And all of these traits are from God in God. That's the first thing. Preach the gospel despite hardship. The second thing is faithful ministers aim to please God. Verse three, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. So this trait contrasts with all forms of trickery and the aim of gaining popularity. So they're saying we didn't come to Thessalonica to get likes on our account. That wasn't why we were there. Okay, we weren't there to gain popularity. We weren't there using trickery to try to take you in. But rather, our aim, our aim, yes, was your salvation, but our aim ultimately was to please God. And look at why. It said we were approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we have a charge. This is not something that we took on ourselves. We were approved by God. We were entrusted with this gospel by God. And so we are under his authority. And so our aim needs to be on the one who entrusted us with this gospel. The gospel's for you, but it's not our gospel. It's God's gospel. And so we are in his service, and our aim is to please him. Now, in Paul's case, his calling came directly from Christ. You may be aware of the road to Emmaus experience that Paul had. Christ singled him out, and he called him. In our case, the leaders of our church have callings from God as well, but they come through the church. And that's the role that you will be playing, and you will be identifying the leaders of this church. You will be saying, yes, this man is worthy to be in this position. The call of God will come through you. But even so, the motive of those called by God through you will not be ultimately to please you, but to please God. The third characteristic, the third trait, faithful ministers operate in innocence. Verses 5 
to the beginning of verse 7. And here's where you'll see that I read it somewhat differently from this translation, just changing punctuation. And by the way, there was no punctuation in the original manuscripts. They didn't use commas and periods and stuff like we do. So that's all interpretive. So here in verse 5, it says, we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, comma, there it has a period, and I'm saying it should be a comma, but we became infants among you. The version says, but we were gentle among you. And it ties that first part of 7 with what continues, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. So quickly, what I suggest is a better way to read it is that we became infants among you goes with what comes before rather than what comes after. It doesn't make sense. Let me just, I don't want to make this too confusing here, but verse 7, if we read it, but we became infants among you like a nursing mother. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? So I would say that there are three different family images here, and they're focusing on three different things. They're the infants, and then they're the nursing mother. Those are separate. And then there are the fathers coming third, okay? So what's the point of this one? If we take 5 up to the first line of 7 together, what's the contrast here? Well, the trait that is emphasized here is innocence, thinking about infants. This trait contrasts with self-seeking. It also contrasts with throwing one's weight around. It says we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Literally, that is, we could have become heavy. We could have become heavyweights with you. And you see Paul sometimes doing that, kind of throwing his weight around with the Galatians and with the Corinthians. He's saying, we're apostles. You listen to us. He said, but we weren't like that with you. We weren't throwing our weight around. We weren't heavies with you. We were infants. We became infants with you. Now, we all know that infants are not completely innocent. Any of us have had infants. We know that they're not completely innocent. But they are innocent of sophisticated self-seeking. And they're also innocent of throwing their weight around because they don't have much weight to throw around. And so what Paul's saying is, that's how we were with you. We were innocent. We didn't have these ulterior motives. We weren't seeking for money. We weren't seeking for fame. We weren't seeking for popularity. We were like infants. We were innocent among you in what we were all about. And then, beginning with the word like in verse 7, we have the fourth characteristic. The faithful ministers give themselves, give themselves. And here's where the nursing mother comes in. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, comma, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So now the image is not of an innocent infant, but it is of a nursing mother who does what? Gives her own substance. She doesn't give something that was given to her outside of herself and pass it on. She gives herself, quite literally, to the infant to nourish the infant. And so he's saying, that's how we were among you. We were not, the contrast would be, we were not guarded among you. We were not aloof 
among you. We were not holding back from you, but rather we were giving of ourselves to you like a nursing mother does. And the missionaries here spoke in the tenderest terms to the believers. Verse 8, you had become very dear to us, like infants and then like nursing mothers. And the fifth characteristic is faithful ministers do whatever is necessary to preach the gospel. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And if you put pieces together, we find that in Thessalonica, these missionaries, at least three of them, they supported themselves in two ways. They received gifts from Philippi, the last place they had been, and the Philippians immediately began giving so that they could carry on their ministry. Um, and they also worked with their own hands. They had trades, and they set up shops somehow. They hired themselves out, and they worked. So they received they received money from outside, and they also made their own money. And this contrasts with being a burden, with being a burden. And he says, we were, this is the same uh, idea of heavy. We didn't want to load you down. We didn't want to be heavy in two senses. We didn't want to throw our weight around, but we also didn't want to burden you financially. And so what did they do? They did whatever it took. Uh, as most of you know, I was a missionary in, in Mexico for uh, 28 years. And, and people would ask me, what's a missionary do? What's a missionary do? And my answer was always the same. Whatever needs to be done. That's what a missionary does. Whatever needs to be done in order to move the gospel forward. And that's what we see here. Uh, what did they do? They did what they needed to do. But they did what they needed to do in a way that didn't burden the, the, the church that was just being born. Uh, the last characteristic. Faithful ministers exhibit and urge righteous living. They both exhibit it and they urge it. And here's the third image. And here, interestingly, he very solemnly calls them as witnesses and God also. Verse 10. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct among you. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his into his own kingdom and glory. This trait contrasts with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, teaching one thing and living in another way. Because they say, you know how we lived among you. I call God as witness. I call you as witness. You know how we were among you. And then not only did we live that way, but we urged you. We constantly exhorted you and encouraged you to live in the same way. There was an integrity between their lives and their message. And this is the third family image. And if we can learn anything about family from this, uh, we, we find that mothers nourish of their own substance and fathers encourage and exhort and instruct in godliness. And there's probably some lessons there about how we're to conduct our lives and the responsibilities that we have as, as mothers and fathers. Now, um, they, reminded, they reminded them in, uh, in verses 11 and 12 about their calling. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. We're talking about the calling of the ministers here, but they're reminding them of their call. And what's that? Uh, their call, all Christians are called to walk in a manner worthy of God because he calls us into his own kingdom and glory. And this kingdom and glory has present aspects and it has future aspects. He calls us into his kingdom now. 
in the kingdom of God, and also that kingdom is moving towards consummation. It's moving towards glory. God has graciously called us all into that. And the, the exhortation is live in accordance with that. You've been called into his kingdom. Live as part of the kingdom. Now, those are the six traits, six traits of, of faithful ministers. And then we have in verses 13 to 16, we have the response to a faithful ministry, response to a faithful ministry. And here, there's a pivot in verse 13. After defending their own ministry, the missionaries reviewed the response of the Thessalonians to their ministry. And basically it was this. They heard the word preached. They saw how they lived and they believed it. They heard the word preached. They saw how the missionaries lived and they believed it. Verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. They believed it, not because of the persuasive speech or the, the tricky language or the, the slick presentation. They believed it because they recognized that it was the word of God being preached. Now, what was it? What was it that they preached that was so convincing? Well, he doesn't spell out what that message was. But we have in other parts of the Bible and other parts of Thessalonians, we have summaries of what they preached. If you look at chapter 4, 14, uh, he says here, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So there are some basic ideas of what they preached. That they, when they heard this message, that Jesus died and Jesus rose again, they believed it. They recognize that that is the message of God. And that is the message of God. That's the, that's the kernel of the gospel news, that Jesus died and Jesus rose. And then if you look back at chapter 1, verse 10, we find out why he did that. He did that to rescue us, to deliver us from the wrath to come. So his death was rescue from the wrath to come. His resurrection is rescue from eternal death. He raised him from the dead so that we might have life. So here is the summary. And when they heard that message, they believed it. Because they said, that's divine. And by the way, that is divine. There's nothing like this. There's nothing like this in all the world. There's no message like this. And the fact that it's unique doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, but it does call attention to it, doesn't it? If there is no other message from all religions and all philosophies like this message that God he came one of us, and as one of us, he died for our sins, and he rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and he reigns, and he calls people into his kingdom, and one day that kingdom will encompass the entire universe. There's no other message like that in all of history and all of the universe, which is a, a, strong, a strong argument in favor of the fact that we didn't make it up, and that we should recognize it as coming from God. That even as it's preached by fallible humans, we should recognize that that message is infallible, without error, that it comes from God. It is his word. Now, the other thing that the Thessalonians did, they, they believed it, but they also continued in it. It says, uh, the word of God in the end of verse 13, which is at work in you believers. And how was it clear that it was at work in them? Because they kept believing it in spite of opposition. This keeps coming up, doesn't it? So they, the missionaries came and they preached in the midst of suffering. The believers received the message and they continued to believe it in spite of what? In spite of suffering. 
So not only did suffering prove the sincerity of belief of the ministers, but it proved the sincerity of belief of those who had heard it and believed it as the word of God. Verse 14, it says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So the very first Christian churches that were among the Jews in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from, and here you see that I'm changing the translation, I'm also changing the punctuation, as they did from the Judeans. Not comma, no comma there. From the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not talking about all Judeans. It's not talking about all Jews. And I hasten to say that because some people read this and they say, here is Paul being very anti-Semitic. Here Paul is going after the Jews, which is kind of funny because what was Paul? A Jew. And so it's kind of ironic there. But it is very, very hard language here. It's very hard language. But who's he talking about? He's talking about the countrymen of the Thessalonians, and he's talking about the countrymen of Judea. The countrymen of Judea were the Judeans. And so it's not an ethnic reference. It's a geographical reference. And which ones is he talking about? He's talking about the Judeans who killed both the Lord and previously the prophets, who drove Paul and the missionaries out, who displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So here he's talking about those Judeans who were in opposition to the gospel. He's saying they persecuted the original Jewish Christians, and you're being persecuted by your countrymen just like they were persecuted by their countrymen. Now, he ends by saying that they're filling up the measure of their sins, these Judeans who did all this. And then the last line is very strong, but it's actually kind of hard to figure it out because it says, but wrath has come upon them. And here it's translated at last. It is simply to end, to the end. And it's not clear. To the max, is that what he's saying? Or unto the end, it will happen in the end. It's not quite clear, but it's certainly a very strong statement about those Judeans who behaved in this way. But apart from that interpretive difficulty, I want us to focus back on the main point, and it's this. Why did the Thessalonian church become a church that was so worthy of imitation? Well, because of the ones they imitated. So this is pushing it back. They were a church that was worthy of imitation. Where did they get that? Where did they get that idea about how to live the Christian faith? They got it from the missionaries who brought the gospel to them. So they were worthy of imitation because they had learned from worthy examples the missionaries who brought the gospel to them. They saw from the beginning what genuine Christianity looked like, and they continued in what they saw. We could say they didn't know any better. They saw genuine Christianity, and what do they do? They followed in genuine Christianity. They saw that genuine Christians continue to focus on Jesus and glorify him no matter how bad the opposition gets. We thought, well, that's what you do. That's what Christians do, and that's what they did. What a great example, right? I, I say oftentimes I became a Christian, and, and I didn't know what Christians did or didn't do. And so I just believe the people, the Christians who were Christians before me. And I'm so glad I did. They, they told me things like, Christians read the Bible every day. I didn't know any better. So I started reading the Bible every day. I've been doing that basically ever since. They said, Christians pray every day. I thought, okay, that's what Christians do. I don't know. I'm new to this. I, I'll pray. 
Christians learn how to share their faith and they share the gospel with other people. Okay, super. Christians give up their money. Okay, good. Christians try to get the gospel to other nations. Great, thanks for telling me that. I didn't know that. I'll do it. You, you folks know what Christianity is. I'll, I'll basically do what you're telling me. And that's what happened here. The, these missionaries came in and they said, this is what Christianity looks like. And the Thessalonians said, great, this is the word of God. We're, we're in, we're following this. And they did. They followed that example. So here we're backing up. Chapter one held out before all of us. The example of a church worthy of imitation. This chapter backs it up and says, where did they get this? Where did they get this? And they got it from ministers worthy of imitation. This this chapter jumps out at me because I was preaching on this chapter. I've been preaching for 30 some years. And so I, I go back through books periodically after years of, of going through. And this is, a, I don't know, second or third time through this book. And I learned so much each time. But one time I was preaching through this book years ago in another place. And a visitor was there. And I looked out and saw this visitor. I didn't, I didn't know her well. I didn't know her hardly at all, but I did recognize who she was. She was the ex-wife of a failed minister who had to leave the ministry because of infidelity and uh, abuse of power and mishandling of money. He had to leave the ministry. And I, and I saw her out there and my heart sank because I was preaching about what a, a, a faithful minister of the gospel looks like. And I, even though I didn't know her well, I knew she was. And so I went up to her after the service. And I said, I, I, I didn't aim. I, this wasn't, I didn't pick this. I didn't know you were going to be here. This wasn't aimed at anybody in particular. I, I wasn't going after anybody. I wasn't. And, and she said, I know, I know. And I, I said, I'm just preaching through this book. She said, I, I understand. I, no, it's not. No offense taken. But then she said something that really stuck with me. With great sadness, she said, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. And I thought, no, it didn't. No, it didn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way among us. And so what do I say to you? So that it doesn't ever become that way among us. Choose your ministry leaders wisely. Pray for them constantly and hold them accountable to the demands of their high calling. Because fairly or not, what people think of Jesus and what people think of Christianity and what people think of the church will oftentimes be what they see in the church's leaders. It doesn't have to be that way. But by God's grace, it can be this way. We can have the kind of ministers that are faithful to the gospel in their lives and in their works so that the church can also reflect that same faithfulness in its life. Let's pray. Our God, we pray for our church, we pray for the church, and we all know, either personally or we've heard of ministers of the gospel who have brought, have brought shame upon themselves, and destruction upon their families and their churches. And Lord, we say it doesn't have to be that way. It ought not to be that way. And we cry out to you, O oh God, 
I cry out to you for myself and for those who are or will be elders and pastors and deacons and teachers in our church and in other churches. And I pray, O oh God, that we would be faithful ministers of the gospel and that there would be a like response from those who hear the gospel preached from our lips, that we would be able to say, you yourselves know, and that they would be able to see our lives and hear our words and say, this message comes from God. And I see traits in them also that come from God. May it be that way, O oh God, among us in this church forever until Christ comes again. Amen.